What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. There is something so wonderful about the ability to read. It's such a wonder that we're able to see marks on a page and decode them into language that makes meaning. As a librarian and teacher, one of the most amazing things I see is the world of reading as it opens up to children. Reading begins with the connection between oral sounds and written words, or with children memorizing and repeating things they hear. From there, we move into the mechanics of decoding, where children really start interpreting the written word. This is a marvelous point in children's reading development when they move into a realm that offers them more independence as a reader. However, even with some independence, does not come complete mastery. So children at this level may not be quite ready for highly complex books with lots of words. However, there is no need to fear. There are many books that are just right for this level of development. In the field of children's literature, we call these books easy readers, or beginning readers, or to broaden out intermediate readers. Each of these designations indicate a group of books that contain more words than a typical picture book, but they still have pictures that support the text. A lot of these kinds of books also are divided into brief chapters to help children begin to learn the structures that they will experience when they move into novels. Even though you may not know what these books are called, I'm pretty sure you're already familiar with the classics like Dr. Seuss's Cat in the Hat or Arnold Lobel's Frog and Toad series, or even one of my childhood favorites, Danny and the Dinosaur by Sid Hoff. All of these are still classics today, but that does not mean we don't have some amazing modern easy readers as well. One of the big trends in the market today is publishers taking a beloved picture book character and translating them into an easy reader format. Among the beloved characters who have transitioned from picture books to easy readers are Fancy Nancy and Pete the Cat. Readers who grew up with these characters will be delighted by their new adventures as they continue to grow as readers. Along with these familiar friends, there are also some great characters that just appear in Easy Readers. Among my favorites are Elephant and Piggy, Cork and Fuzz, and Ballet Cat. So no matter if it's a classic or a favorite or even a brand new friend, here at Rachel's World, we believe there is no limit to the amazing books out there that can help readers build skills and confidence while they enjoy a great story at the same time. No one likes to kill time. What do you do with those empty intervals when you're waiting for the doctor or the dentist or when you're parked at the curb waiting for your child at school? Do you play on your smartphone, stare at the wall, practice zen? What about using some of those spare minutes to read? Our guest today, reading specialist Donalyn Miller, suggests that we anticipate such moments by toting a book wherever we go. Miller discusses with Rachel how to instill this good habit in our children to help them become lifelong readers. Donalyn Miller taught in elementary and middle schools in Northeast Texas and was a finalist for the 2010 Texas Teacher of the Year. She's the author of The Book Whisperer and Reading in the Wild, which both explore independent reading and practical strategies for engaging young minds with reading. Here's Rachel and Donalyn Miller. 
I am so honored to be chatting with Donalyn Miller today. Welcome, Donalyn. Hello. Thank you for inviting me to be here. I am so honored to speak with you. Your work has just been really impactful in my life and as a, my career as a librarian and a teacher. And I'm just so excited to share your thoughts and your your experience with a wider audience uh, of our listening audience. So let's start out. Um, one of your books is called Reading in the Wild. So tell us a little bit, what is different about wild reading? I, uh, you know, I had this concern that we... The way we teach reading leads kids towards some reading success, at least by what we measure, at school. But, you know, so many of my students who read avidly when they were in my classroom stopped reading when they left. Now, I, you know, the, and the way that we do as teachers, we I hyper-focused on the small group that would I would run into at Target or I would run into at the mall two or three years later who would come up to me and say, like, my students former students, some of them walk towards me like I'm the reading police. You know, hello, Mrs. Miller. I haven't read a book since I left your classroom. That's terrible. (laughs) I know. And at first I'd be like, why are you telling me this? We're just at Target together. But, you know, I, uh, (laughs) uh, I, I, it it really bothered me because they, these were students who I knew had been successfully engaged with reading while they were in my class, but for whatever reason, it didn't stick. And so, you know, in that reflective way, trying to ask myself, well, how does that happen? So I thought, well, what what's the difference between that condition we create at school that may successfully engage kids with reading and what that reality looks like for all readers when they go out into the world? So we designed a survey called the Wild Reader Survey, and we thought, you know, let's just talk to some adults about their reading lives. What are they doing that my students don't know how to do? Um, And how can we bridge that gap between school and home? So what were some of those things that you found? I know particularly with that book, it was really impressive to me because they, it really does break down these basic habits of what it means to be this kind of lifelong reader who will read out of self-motivation or a more um, intrinsic motivation and it really is about developing those habits in in child readers that so they will become lifelong readers. Well, the you know time is clearly you know when you ask teachers why they can't get to anything that they want, we know what universally the answer is. They don't have time. And when I talk to young readers and I say, uh, why do you are you not reading as much at home as you wished you could? They always say time, and, and I am a little amused by that because they're ten, they're eleven, and they think they're too busy to read and. And we also have some eminent people in our in our culture today, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and President Obama, who've been very open about reading and, and how much they enjoy reading. And I don't think anybody's busier than the two of them. So uh, the time is certainly one of the things. How are readers out in the world using time in a way that allows them some time to read? You know, uh, a lot of us don't have those opportunities to sit at our dining room table from 7.30 to 8 o'clock on a, on a Tuesday night and read a book. And what I learned uh, talking to our, our readers who responded to the Wild Reader Survey is that they feel it. Ten minutes here before they go to bed, 15 minutes before the meeting, they go down to renew their driver's license, they take a book with them. Uh, jury duty, that's a two-book day. You know, they, 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 it's, the time wasn't really the factor. It was the taking a book with them taking something with them to read on a phone, on a Kindle. You know, they, they carried reading material 
on their persons or in their cars or in their bags for those moments that inevitably occur where they were sitting somewhere for 15 minutes or sitting somewhere for 10 minutes. So in some ways we could contend that time, that, that finding time to read isn't a function of time at all. It's a function of book access. Do we have something to read when the time appears? And that's what we found our wild readers were doing that our students don't necessarily know to do. I, I could not agree more. I I usually read about 400 books a year, and I, I often get people say to me, how do you do that? And it's because I carry them with me all the time. I have some kind of book with me at all times, and it's amazing. And those small snatches of time, I think sometimes we look at big tasks like reading a book, and we think, oh, this is so daunting. It's going to take me forever. But if you just divide it into those little snatches, that's all it takes. So what are some of the other things that you that you found in this research that you did that can help us help our children to become lifelong readers? Well, choice, we want them to have choices because we know choice is empowering. But we also know that allowing kids to self-select what they read helps them build their ability to choose appropriate reading material for themselves. So, you know, a student who's only reading five or six teacher-selected books a year is not building the nuanced decision-making skills that readers employ when they're selecting books. If you and I walk into a bookstore or we walk into a public library, we're we're confident that we can find something both that we can read with comprehension and that we would be interested in reading. But we don't pick up those skills overnight. We, We pick up those skills from a lifetime of picking some books, trying some things, having those false starts where we pick a book and start reading it and go, and go, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. This is a completely different book than I thought I was. I was selecting now in or out. Am I going to keep reading it, or is this a book I might abandon and make another choice? So that's how we can support kids in that regard. And just to put as small a footprint as possible from our own perspective and points of view on what children should be reading. I I love that, that that sense of kind of twofold that children really need to practice this self-selection and being able to figure out how to figure out what their own tastes are and what their own reading abilities are. And, you know, a lot of times we do that with things like food. You know, you have to try it and you have to see what you want and then you can decide if you don't want to eat it or even sports teams or other kinds of activities. But we don't really extend that to reading. We don't provide those kind of authentic places for them to figure out where they fit and what their selection is. And then that second part of that, being able to to have them be able to, you know, have their own choices and not us as adults negate those choices or negate their likes and dislikes, which can be challenging as adults because we want to, them to share what we enjoy. <laughs> well, it's what we're well-meaning. I believe all the things that we we can reflect on them. When I say we, I always mean me too. But when I reflect on the ways that I may have encroached on a child's reading life, it, it was a, it was under the guise of doing something that I thought was well-meaning. But sometimes our short-term goals for our students, particularly in a school setting or even for our children, our short-term girl, goals get in the way of our long-term vision for them as readers. Uh, we certainly, I don't think any teacher says, I don't care if I kill my students' love of reading in my class. You know, I, I don't imagine that conversation taking place in a classroom or a school somewhere. But I think we do have this idea of we have an academic responsibility to make sure that our students learn how to read well. And um, that goal sometimes gets in front of our longer-term goal to send readers and writers out into the world. So. 
Uh, I think all those efforts are well-meaning, but we have to keep in mind that we're not just teaching the readers our students are right now. We're teaching the readers who they will become yeah. or, or potentially not become. And I, th- I think that's the key, the not become that we have to we have to pay attention to. I, I know this is going to be a really tough question. And as we wrap up our brief conversation here today, Donalyn, this this is my tough question to to top off our conversation. But in your career as a teacher and your experience with all of this, what is maybe the top tip that you would give to a parent or other concerned adult about the kind of things that they should be doing or the kinds of things they should approach to help their children become lifelong readers? At school and home, surprisingly, uh, the same the same suggestions. It's pretty sticky setting aside regular time to read, and that's in the classroom, and that is at home. Regular routines and rituals around reading, because we schedule everything in our lives, but if we don't get reading on the schedule, the reading doesn't happen. And I would also say that choice piece, making sure kids have the ability to self-select things to read at school and home, and of course, choice depends on access. We have to have the books to be able to read them in the first place. Those are two perfect tips, and if... Our listeners aren't familiar with your work. I would really encourage them to become familiar with it. You have your two wonderful books, The Book Whisperer and Reading in the Wild, and you also are active in online communities as well. Um, you, you focus mainly on teachers, but this is some great information that is appropriate for a wide range of adults. So I know I have been very much influenced and affected by your work, Donalyn, and I am so grateful to share it with our listening audience today. Thank you so much, and thank you for all the work that you're doing. That was Donalyn Miller talking to Rachel Wadham about ways to help our children become lifelong, independent readers. Our next guest on Worlds Awaiting is Kerry Soper, known by students and colleagues for his expertise in pop culture. Soper is also an author and artist. He and Rachel talk about how comics can help all of us in better understanding the world. Soper teaches interdisciplinary humanities and American studies at BYU. His research is often focused on comic strips, satire, and popular film. He is presently working on a book about Gary Larson, creator of the comic strip The Far Side. Here's Rachel and Carrie Soper. We're welcoming Carrie into the studio today. Welcome, Carrie. Hi. Thanks, Rachel. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about the things that you study is is just how much um, they help us understand the world in so many different ways. Your main focus is comics and comic art, but they the comic form is just amazing in that it helps us understand the world around us in a really unique way. So let's talk a little bit about how do comics help us understand the world? How can comics help children see the world in a new way? I think, you know, we kind of take them for granted because there are so many different mediums that are out there in our culture that we're accustomed to consuming. There's comic strips, comic books, graphic novels, uh, panel cartoons, and then, you know, close cousins and animated cartoons for kids and films. And so uh, we we enjoy them and intuitively sort of understand how they work, but we don't usually take them very seriously. They're often undervalued or even derided as being sort of simplistic or, or, or lowbrow. And so I think a lot of my writing has to do with, you know, exploring that 
untapped uh, or underappreciated complexity. Um, but they do have this ability to kind of uh, distill narratives and characters down to essences, icons, archetypes. And so they're visually and emotionally uh, you know, and psychologically sort of powerful um, symbols or, or, or imagery that we, we engage with in, in ways that we don't completely understand. You know, you can actually look at this from a, a positive perspective and also one that's slightly negative. On the negative side, um, cartoons can sometimes oversimplify uh, groups of people down to stereotypes. And so you, you create a caricature that um, promotes, you know, constructed lies about a particular group of people that distort who they are. And so they can be very manipulative in, in that way. And there are instances in our in our history where cartoons have been used uh, to, to reinforce racist ideas about minority people. Um, on the positive side, uh, archetypes, you know, according to like psychologists like Carl Jung, are these very powerfully sort of loaded symbols that um, contain all kinds of resonant cultural information that uh, speaks to us. So like when, when you see a, a, hero, a heroic figure in a, in a comic book, it's not just uh, Batman or Superman, but it's a distillation of all kinds of notions or values that are attached to, to things that we value in, in heroic figures or um, – you know, sort of lost figures that are, are searching for morality or, or, or meaning. And so our, our cultural literacy in terms of having seen so many other heroic archetypes in films like Star Wars or in fairy tales inform our reading of those comic book uh, archetypes or heroes. They certainly do. And I think that that sense of universality with all of this is really important and, and particularly helping as we help our kids this, get this sense of this cultural literacy, how do we how do we tap into that need or that sense that this is really important? Because, like you said, some people look at comets and think of them as lowbrow, but they fulfill this really fundamental cultural need for us. So, how how do we kind of change that viewpoint of comics and help un, help us understand why why they are beneficial to us as readers and children as readers? In particular, well, I, I think first of all, parents, you know, shouldn't be uh, afraid of, of comics. Um, in their mind, maybe they associate them with with just one particular kind of garish genre. Maybe they've seen one version of like a superhero comic that seems especially uh, silly or, or melodramatic. But there's a, you know a rich variety of genres and styles out there, and interesting graphic novels and classics illustrated comics, and so just being open to the ideas of comics being a legitimate form for children and adults is, is a first step. And then maybe becoming educated about the underappreciated complexity that's there. There's a famous book that was published that helps with achieving that, that awareness, and it's uh, Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. Um, it's actually drawn in comics form, so it, it teaches about comics through a comics uh, medium. And it, it, it powerfully illustrates a number of principles that show that uh, power and complexity. Uh, for example, one of his key ideas is um, comics in being distilled and simplified are not simplistic, but there's amplification through simplification. And so um, they act as maybe these powerful signs, archetypes, or portals into a rich 
imaginative world. It's just like an entry rather than some sort of uh, reductive um, drawing. That's that's a good way to put it. Can you give us a specific example, maybe one a comic that you enjoyed as a child that that would illustrate that, or maybe some of the ones that you study as an adult that illustrate maybe, that maybe example? Maybe an example that would be familiar to a lot of people is uh, the comic Peanuts by uh, Charles Schultz. Uh, you know, it's it's drawn in such a small scale, almost looks like postage stamps when you see it, you know, how it was published in newspapers. And you have these little iconic uh, children, you know, with the oversized heads and the, and the small bodies, uh, very cute and, and, and simplified and iconic. Um, so from a distance, you look at that and you think, you know, that, that, that simple circle and those widely spaced eyes and the, the kind of straight line for Charlie Brown's mouth you know, you know, what is that? That seems so minimal. But if you're familiar with the strip, you know that Charlie Brown has a rich inner life, that this is a melancholy, you know, troubled kid that seems to face defeat wherever he goes. Some, you know, scholars have even said that Peanuts has these sort of dark existential themes that speak to adults and kids in, in rich ways. And so that that face that's so simple almost acts like a, a portal for the reader. Like it's, it's minimalism allows you to almost project your own face onto, onto Charlie Brown, to identify more directly with him or to more easily enter into his world. So you could compare that to maybe a highly realistic drawing of a little boy's face, which um, you, know, you could admire for its, its uh, realistic kind of interpretation of how that boy looks. But because it's so detailed – it almost blocks you from identifying or entering into his life. But it's the simplicity of Charlie Brown that makes it universally sort of open or accessible. Yeah, and I love that. I think that's true. A lot of children's media is has that kind of deceptively simple. When yeah. I think of children's picture books, I think of how – how simple and straightforward they are, but there's these layers of meaning underneath them that take take you as an adult – deeper into it. And sometimes even as children take you deeper into that, I, I think children can understand those emotions very deeply because of the simplicity of all right. of that. You know, and it's interesting that in other um, cultural traditions like in Japan and France, adults seem to understand this and appreciate it. And, you know, comics mediums are enjoyed across, you know, age barriers. But in the United States, there are some peculiar aspects to the history of comics that have, have uh, given them the stigma of being, uh, you know, lowbrow, maybe related to, you know, low levels of literacy or being sort of vaguely inappropriate for children. And so we're still trying to uh, overcome some of the prejudice, right, that, that people have towards yeah. these mediums. So how can we overcome those prejudices? What are some of the things we can do as consumers or helping children understand their role in their lives to overcome some of these unique prejudices? I think, you know, again, just being open to the variety of genres that are out there, kind of exploring that uh, richness. Um, there are, you know, rich graphic novels that are being published these days. Uh, there's a, a woman named Francoise Mouilly who used to be the art director at The New Yorker who has worked with uh, grade schools and you know the scholastic publisher to create these tune books, which are um, cartoons that you know grade schools can purchase that actually promote uh, literacy. And so 
you know, being aware of, of, of uh, these trends and embracing them and sort of including these genres as, as part of your print-rich environment in your home, I think, is, 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 is a good step. Yeah, and I the tune books are fabulous. I'm very familiar with that. Is that and right? It is an amazing line of books. Very sophisticated. Uh, the art, particularly, is very sophisticated in those books. But they yeah. really connect the literacy elements as well. Just just delightful. I uh, think. Well, can I interject? Yeah, that yeah. Maybe um, learning a little bit about the history of, of comics, their ups and downs in our own cultural history can help dispel some of those um, prejudices as well. Yeah, and I think that's the tricky thing, that accuracy is that misunderstanding that we we need to be more critical about how we're looking at it. Thank you so much, Carrie, for this wonderful talk today. We appreciate it. Thank you. That was BYU Humanities professor Carrie Soper talking to Rachel about how comics bring better understanding of the world. We finish up the show today with three children's book illustrator authors, Bob Shea, Leslie Helikoski, and Beth Ann Anderson, who share tips for anyone who wants to enter the world of illustration and writing. Would you tell us maybe one tip that you would give to children if they wanted to be a writer and illustrator to, to help encourage them along that pathway? Oh, you know, that's pretty easy. Just um, read, read, write, and draw. That's it. And if you don't, and if you want to only do one of those things, just read. You just have to read things all the time and just take things in. Find out the thing that you like to read and then just find as many of those things as you can. That's really it. If they want to write, keep reading. And if they want to paint, keep playing. And to even to copy other artists. And, and copying is, is a terrific way to, I mean, emulating is something. We, we learn everything by, by copying. So um, for some reason, artists think that it's, a, it's, not, it's cheating in order to do that. So I do encourage them to copy, copy things you like, even trace things that they like. Um, it's a great way to train the eye and play with shape and line. So I keep telling them to, to keep trying. It sounds so cliche, but it's so true. We all start out with really horrible first drafts. That's another thing I always tell the writers, too. I write horrible first sentences, <laughs> but I can come back and change them. When I have the story down, the rest is just play. I like to play with the words and find unique ways to say what I'm saying so I can scratch out a boring sentence and just replace it with something more interesting. Um, but the story's already there. So I, I would say don't be afraid of editing, and it's a chance to make it shine. That is the difference um, between, I think, someone who is successful, that they go through the rejections and keep going. There's a lot of students and a lot of people that get rejected and then give up. And I totally understand that. I mean, rejection goes into your veins and kind of bubbles out of your skin in a painful way. But once you understand that, (laughs) that it will pass, then you're okay. But I think the trick is going, okay, that's part of it. And you only learn from your mistakes. I mean, it's a trite comment, but it's absolutely true, you know. And so I I like them. I I mean, I've learned everything I know from bad mistakes, you know. That's where you learn. 
three illustrator authors of children's books, Bob Shea, Leslie Helikoski, and Beth Ann Anderson, sharing their tips. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.